Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Amen. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 22. For just a bit here, I'm going to talk about when it comes to intercession, like when we spoke the first few times, we went straight to Isaiah 59, remember, verse 16. We went to that classic, the most known verse about intercessory prayer where God said, and I sought for a man. It says that God wondered, rather, let me quote it correctly, and God wondered that there was no intercessor, and therefore his own arm brought salvation and brought freedom. Basically, but the thing is, he said, it says he sought for a man. He sought for one person. And so in the teaching of this years ago, this particular part, I can't do it all now, but I called it the principle of one, just knowing that, it's, that God only says it only takes one person. It's absolutely tied to the covenant and absolutely, absolutely believes what God said is true and believes that God will empower a man or a woman to stand in the gap and that one person can change an entire nation. One person can, if, if we're to believe the Bible, it's everybody's individual choice. Some people believe the parts they want to believe, but not the rest of it. But I just wanted us to look at this, so I'm going to try not to procrastinate here. Ezekiel 22, again, it would be, do you good to read, you know, the entire chapter. This is where, of course, in the Old Testament, just like in Isaiah, remember Isaiah 59, verse 1, it said, Behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. He starts with that. He said, Behold, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear dull that he will not hear. But he speaks then about the separation that came between mankind and God and God's will to bless him. And he talked about all the problems, all the sins, all the shortcomings of his people and the things that had made the separation between his people and himself. And that's the same thing you're going to read here in Ezekiel 22. It's the same, same thing you're going to read in Jeremiah. It's amazing that you have Isaiah prophesying from around 9, 9 I'm sorry, about 688, I forget, something like 540. And you've got Jeremiah from the, from the 10th century, 10, from around 968 B.C. onward. You see these prophets 100, 200 years apart talking about different situations. But in each case, God is saying, he'll talk about one man. I sought for a man. I sought for somebody. Is there anybody out there? that will listen to me, that will take hold of my covenant, that will trust me. And this is really, really important because today so many people are talking about how God's pronouncing judgment. God's pronouncing judgment. God's bringing judgment. God said he's going to judge. God said he's going to judge. But what you find out if you're an honest student of scriptures in the Old Testament, I'll show you some here. When God says, I'm going to judge something, He's waiting, hoping that there will be an intercessor in the background who will hear that he's going to judge so that somebody might come to him through the covenant and invoke mercy. So what should happen doesn't have to happen. Now, you really need to hear that. That is a crucial dividing line in understanding God's grace. God is love. He was love back in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Just as much as he's loved today, he never changes. He's God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's different language in the Old Testament, though, and so people, they fall up on it, and they, and they still have this perverted idea that God's up there, you know, wanting to, like we always say, got a 14-kilo cricket bat waiting to just bust it over your head the moment you make a mistake. 
Anytime God pronounces judgment, he is hoping and waiting for somebody because remember, the only reason God judges something is when a covenant is broken somewhere. I want to say that again. The only reason judgment ever came is because covenant was broken somewhere. So it's not that God's mad like it says we see when it says, I'm going to let my wrath boil hot. Again, it's, you don't have the privilege or you haven't had maybe the opportunity, you know, we've had in Bible school or Bible college, whatever, we had to study all those verses, whether they're causative or permissive and all this stuff. But the fact is, he's pronouncing stuff, but then he's waiting to hear if anybody will intervene in behalf of right or truth, like it says back in Isaiah 59. Uh, I've really got to hurry. So in Ezekiel, we're seeing the same situation. The people of God have messed up to the point, and read verse 18. I read from the Amplified Bible always. Think about God's love for people, and yet God's people messing up to the point that he makes this statement. Look at this, Ezekiel 22:18. Son of man, the house of Israel has become to me scum and waste matter. <laughs> Think about that. Think about the fact that he's saying these people have, been, have so separated themselves from me. They've so profaned me. They've, they're, so, they're such idolaters that they've actually become like scum, something I have to wave off the top of the crucible and waste matter. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace. They are the dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become scum and waste matter, behold, therefore, I will gather you, O Israel, into the midst of Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to read fast, so don't get angry at me. Verse 20, as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it in order to melt it, so will I gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know, understand, and realize that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath upon you, O Israel. That's really a good report, isn't it? Hallelujah. That would make you jump up and say, glory, right? Bring me an ice cream. Verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of Israel's false prophets in the midst of her, like a roaring lion. They tear the prey. They have devoured human lives. They've taken in their greed treasure and precious things. They've made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests, verse 26 in the Amplified is incredible. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. Listen to this next few phrases. They have made no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Neither have they taught people the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they've hid their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst of her are like wolves rending and devouring the prey, shedding blood and destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them over with whitewash, seeing false visions and divining lies to them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and extortion and have committed robbery. Yes, they've wronged and vexed the poor and needy. Yes, they have oppressed the stranger and the temporary resident wrongfully. And here again is verse 30. After all of that stuff, it comes to this, this principle of one again. 
And I sought for a man. Amen. Everybody say amen. It's very important. It's singular. Every scripture, you know, there's no scripture that's without significance. may say that not one jot or tittle of the word will pass away. Every single aspect of God's word is true. But let's act like we've never heard it. But think about this. He's looking at his people. They made so many mistakes. He says, you're like scum and waste matter to me. And yet, it says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So let's just be real simple. I don't have time to take you through a whole word study there, but does it or does it not say, I don't really want to destroy the land? Does it say that? Does it? Talk to me. That I might not destroy it. He's pronouncing this whole thing, but he says, I don't want to. This is everything that's going on. But nevertheless, if I can find one person to stand in the gap and to build up the wall, I won't destroy it. Now, again, because of the time I'm going to take with something else, I don't have time to go through all this. But as I started like four weeks ago, I said, you know, in the work of intercession, people, you know, don't really sometimes understand what they're asking for when they say, Father God, I'd like to be an, make me an intercessor. Like I said, I think there's a great difference in being involved in the intercessory prayer, which again, remember, the literal word means to go before a king in behalf of another. So the power of intercession is found in the fact, again, remember that it's selfless. It's not a prayer that benefits me. It's a prayer that benefits somebody else. That's why it's intercession, intercede. We seed, we go before. But I said, I've maybe been an intercessor maybe three times in my life because of the definitions that you find that really, really say what an intercessor is. But nevertheless, it says to stand in the gap. Now, the only way I can ever illustrate this, do any of you remember Roadrunner cartoons way back in the day? Any of you? Honest enough? <laughs> you remember like when whatever would happen, the, the, the uh, jive little bird, the road runner, you know what I mean, would be running away and the coyote would be chasing and all of a sudden the coyote would find himself like in front of a giant dam and he's got his finger in the dam trying to make sure the dam doesn't break. Do you ever remember seeing one of those pictures? A gap. A gap speaks to just that, to a dam, a huge dam. If you can imagine... Like, because Julie and I have been to Las Vegas a lot, not to gamble, no. We, <laughs> you know, we used to minister there quite often in Boulder City, right, by, right at Las Vegas. And we'd always go down there and eat because you can eat for 14 days for free in Las Vegas. That's, I was 120 pounds before I went there. <laughs> I actually just lost my sense. It's all your fault. I did. I just lost my sense of where I was. What? A gap, yeah, sorry. Hoover Dam is what I was going to speak to. If you've ever been to Hoover Dam, just gigantic dam. But if you can imagine, when you go down to the very bottom of the dam, you can, they take you on this little tour and you sit at the bottom of the dam, and I don't know if it's 300 feet or 400 feet up a sheer concrete. You've seen it in films and what have you. But... To stand in the gap, the Hebrew words, it speaks to a breach in a wall, a breach, a rip, a tear, a crack that, has, that is breaking through. 
And so what I want you to see is that a gap, you have to understand, in that wall of water back there, there's old tree limbs, there's old lumber, there's old chairs, <laughs> there's anything and everything that people have thrown away that's in a river. But I mean, there's all manner of stuff that's there. And to stand in the gap means God is looking for somebody who's willing to stand in a place that is very uncomfortable. In other words, if you're looking to be an intercessor and you think there's going to be glamour involved, you are wrong, okay? There's no glamour involved in actual intercession. You choose to stand in a place where all the mud, the crud, the blood, the guts, everything else begins to come through. It means, remember, the word intercede means to get in the way of also. And you choose to get and stand in the way often of the judgment or the trans or, or the penalty, as it were, of the stuff that's coming towards someone else. And you choose to know, get in the way, and say, stop. But in the meantime, you're getting hit upside the face, hit in the chest, knocked out, thrown down. You, all manner of stuff happened to you because you're the one that's in the gap. You're the one that's standing in the breach where all the crud is coming through. So did you hear me about that one? Somebody say yes. Just help me so I can go along quicker. So it's not a glamorous position. It's a position of strength, though, because it's a position where God sees somebody that has spiritual backbone. God sees that somebody is willing to give of themselves for the sake of something or someone else. But this is everywhere. So first and foremost, in prayer, this is one of these things that you do have to go over and study afresh often because you've got to go back and rebuild to reignite your own faith to understand this is not just some parable. You know, people who are what they call uh, cessationists who, who preach that all the gifts of the Spirit are gone since Christ, since the day of the apostles, there's no more power, there's no more gifts of the Spirit. They say that all those miracles are descriptive, and they say our problem is, that we kind of people who still believe in the power of God, he said their problem is they take those scriptures to be prescriptive when we know that they're only descriptive. Well, I raise my hand and I plead guilty. I believe these are prescriptive. When I see somebody in God's word do something, see, I know the word of God says God is no respecter of persons. I believe that. He will not do for one man what he won't do for another man if, similar, if situations are similar. But that's the place of starting. You have to believe that. You can't just tickle your ears with it. You have to meditate in this and go on this and think about it. That verse where it says, you know, just to read it again, I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You know, therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them and so on. But I mean, I, for years, years ago, I mean, I remember, you have to, you have to become a person that meditates the word of God. Absolutely, we all know the verse. We've been around this for years, most of us. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest show thyself worthy of it, and that you might deal wisely in the affairs of life. We're supposed to meditate. But I mean, when it comes to verses like this, even right now I hesitate because I know I'm speaking faster than I want to. I would stop. You have to stop and ponder. You know, the word silah means to pause and calmly think on that. Does he really say one man? That's something that you have to come to a decision about yourself. 
But this is why we study the book. We don't just visit it. Does he really mean this? Or is this just some verse that we should take scissors and cut it out of the scripture? But why, if that's the case, why does he also say it then in Jeremiah 5.1? Jeremiah 5.1, I've got it on here somewhere. I've got too many notes about stuff. Jeremiah 5.1 says, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Again, one man. If I can find one person, but this is the reason Jeremiah 5, 1 is important is because when he says, if I can find one person that knows how to execute judgment. And that again, it's a clear covenantal phrase. It means that knows the covenant and can act like Jesus acts today, seated at the right hand of God. He's an intercessor. He's somebody, he sit, it's a courtroom picture. It's, it's the advocacy side. The right hand of the Lord always speaks of advocacy, the one who's trying to work to defend the person that condemnation is coming against. But he's saying here, you know, if I can just find somebody that knows how to execute, that means like push the button, you know, when you push your mouse on a computer and you click where it says click here, it executes the executable file. God's looking for somebody that will execute the truth. In other words, like we said a week ago or two weeks ago, decree and declare a thing that it might be established that'll, that'll take the truth that's been lying in the street and bring it up and hold it in the face of the judgment and hold it in the face of the liar so that truth can exalt itself and not stay fallen in the streets. If you weren't here in the last few weeks, then you know that I'm referring to that. But another thing I want you to catch about that, the end, I'm just going to read this from my notes real quick, back from Exodus 22. When it says there, I sought for man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap that I should destroy, but I found one. I'm just going to read from my old notes. Now, I told you well, uh, last week or the week before, the actual word for intercessor in the Old Testament is this four-letter word transliterated P-A-G-A, paga, which means to light upon. It means aggression. It means to kill in one case. But it speaks about having an aggression. But that word para, excuse me, paga comes from paras, P-A-R-A-S. And let me just read here, just from my old notes. It says the entire idiom in this scripture, Ezekiel 22:30, is typified by the Hebrew root word paras, used 50 times in the Old Testament, mostly in a military or disaster situation. Now listen to this definition, because it's got two sides to it. It's a two-pronged fork, paras, intercession. Paras does not mean simply to, quote, punch a hole through just to make an opening, but it means to level, to raise. Now, the word raise, I never, years ago, I didn't know what it meant, R-A-Z-E. How many of you are familiar with the word R-A-Z-E? The word raise means take it down to dirt level. I mean, you destroy, you, not, you don't leave any parts of the walls, or you raise, it's raised to the ground. That's what's happened in Syria and some of these places we see. The word does not mean simply to punch a hole through, but to level and to raise. I mean to rip it apart. But the other side of the same idiom, it says, of this word means to increase, to break over by plenty, to increase also to command 
Therefore, within the root, we see a double meaning. Within the midst of this, while an intercessor is tearing down, he's also building up. Or maybe I should say it this way. When an intercessor is building up, he's also tearing down. Now that comes where you can see like Jeremiah 1.10, where it says, where God says, See, I have this day, this is one of the things God spoke to Jeremiah. He said, This day I have appointed you to the oversight of the nations and of the kingdoms, listen, to root out and to pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. One of the things you learn about in, if, if you've had your life full of much prayer and much intercession and you prayed for tough situations in people's lives and things like the situations I've dealt with, Julie's dealt with, over 35 some years of being involved with this, is you learn that prayer often, before things get better, things get worse. When you pray for people, when we prayed for our own son, you know, when Jamie was having a tough time and he was you know, putting 14 earrings and everything but his nose, <laughs> you know, wanting to do tattoos, smoking weed, you know, running for the chicks, because he had the same problem I did. Women were all over him. That's where you're supposed to laugh, remember? <laughs> but, I mean, Jamie was so good-looking, this, that, and the other. And so much was happening, and we began not to pray for him. Julie really did, I really did, and again, it's a part of his testimony we've given in years back about praying Ephesians 1, Father, open the eyes of his understanding. Grant him that spirit of wisdom and revelation. I know that verse. Julie knows it. But we didn't know that both of us started praying that. Real, I mean praying it, not just saying it. I mean praying it over this kid. And it was really embarrassing because 11 days later, he walks in the house with his hair gone, the earrings gone, and he's got an application in his hand. Dad, will you sign this? I want to go to Bible school. I mean, you know, I about fainted. Now, I'm not telling you, I'm not exaggerating. I'm saying in 11 days, God turned this young man's heart from three or four, four years of absolute rebellion. But the point is, you can't say it, you've got to pray it, you've got to mean it. Well, one of the things I want to get at is this. When you first start to pray for situations, whether it's in family, I don't care if it's business, I don't care what, this is a basic principle that a lot of people need to know about when you pray for situations. Often, things, listen, help me, Lord. The Bible says the entrance of God's word brings light. You may not know where that is, but just agree with me. That's what the Bible says. The entrance of God's word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. We are taught the best way to pray on the planet Ephesians 6 is to learn to pray the word of God. Because the word of God is anointed, right? I spoke to that last week just in short terms. Ephesians 6, the basic truth. Put on the whole armor of God and pray the rhema of God, not the Logos, not the whole Bible, but pray that particular scripture that God will bring up into your remembrance for use in time of need, the prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. It's the exact definition of the word rhema out of W. Vine's New Testament, expository, Testament, expository New Testament of words. God. <laughs> you, you, we began to, you begin to pray the word of God over a situation. You pray first, God, give me a rhema. Seriously, give me a word. I don't just mean, but I need to see it. It'll be different possibly for every single person. But the thing is, he'll give you something that's alive to you to pray over a situation, to pray over a person. 
But what so many people misunderstand, and again, if you can just see this word, if people are in bondage of any form, that is darkness. If a situation is being clouded or, or held back, oppressed, that's a form of darkness. When we pray God's word, the entrance of God's word brings light. Light begins to go into that dark place, okay? Now hear me, because I'm going to give you something that's actually powerful in just 30 seconds that you can't expand upon. Have you ever walked into a pitch black room before? I mean, and you're standing in a pitch black room, and somebody finds that old switch, and they put on, the light comes on suddenly. The first thing you do is, well, you go boom to the light, but then instantly you turn away, don't you? Because your eyes have to adjust. You've got to catch that. When people are in darkness, and you begin to pray the word of God into their lives, often the first sign that prayer is working is that they turn away even more. Did you hear me? You see, knowing this will empower you to pray further and to pray longer. Because most people, well, I prayed for them, but it just got worse, and they quit praying. They don't understand that it getting worse often is just part of the journey. Did you hear me? But this is where you keep praying the word of God in the situation because people often have to have a short period of time for their eyes to adjust to this new light that's coming. This is why real intercession, is some, it's a journey. It's a length of time. It's not a one-off arrow prayer to God. Thank you, amen, God bless, let's get coffee. That's not intercession. But these are real truths here I want you to catch. So often in prayer, let's put it this way real quick again, often a lot of prayer is not just building up, but it's tearing down. And really, in most cases, the first thing that happens when you start praying is you begin to dismantle in the realm of the spirit whatever demonic structure or whatever dark ignorance has been holding something in a position where there's no fruitfulness. And if you just keep praying God's word, you see light comes. I tell you, where God's light is, fruit comes. I'm telling you, where God's light is, fruit comes. But the issue is, will you stick with it? Will you stick with it? I sought for a man who would stand, not somebody who would just visit. Somebody that will stand there and take the time to what? Build the wall. Now rebuild the wall where the breach was. But one of the most phenomenal passages in all Scripture about intercession is, of course, Abraham. I want you to go to Genesis 18. I want to I'm trusting God if I can just get through a bit of this and get to Moses for a moment. You see, this phenomenal revelation to me, I, it's, it's mind-blowing. Genesis 18. Hallelujah. Turn to your neighbor and say, Hi. Genesis 18. Sorry, I know I shouldn't be being foolish. Uh, we're going to start here in verse 16. Genesis 18. And I know that you all know this, but again, God's come down, and it's about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about the fact that, well, in verse, verse 17 is an incredible verse. Can we back? These angels have just visited. Abraham didn't even know where they were angels. These three men came and stood outside his area. And Abraham, God's man, God's covenant man, Abraham, not one of his 368 trained servants, but Abraham himself runs up to meet them. This, 
there's a whole study as well about the inner workings of a man's heart. What kind of man God uses or a woman God uses. He looks for somebody that could care less whether or not they're the top dog on the list that have enough humility that they can run, get the cow, do whatever, cook the meat, make some difference, just serve it up. He did not know that they were angels. But they were angels, and these angels spoke to him about having a child and what have you. But then the Lord, it says, verse 16, let me start in verse 16, if you guys can put it up, Genesis 18, 16. The men rose up from there, these angels, and faced towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. Now, verse 17 like I said, this, this is a passage that we should spend, you know, like a half a semester in Bible school on. Seriously, I'm, I'm not trying to be clever. It says, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham? Now notice in the, in the Amphite it says, my friend and servant. It's because, again, there's covenant terminology throughout Scripture. And I've said this before to people. You won't, understanding covenants of blood covenants, the revelation of covenanting by blood and what they are and what it stands for is the cipher. A cipher means the key that will unlock something that's tied up as a mystery. Covenant is a language. If you don't understand covenant, most of the Bible will have misinterpretation for you. And sadly, hardly any church I know actually teaches in length the blood covenant. It's standing about it, what have you. You know, this, it's one of my favorite things to teach, but it's, a, it's something that takes time and dedication, but once you catch it, you're forever changed because you see what God's trying to communicate. But here the Lord said, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham? When it says my friend, remember like in the Bible says, oh, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That's the covenant language. Remember the word friend in covenant talk, it has nothing to do with what you think friendship is. Nothing to do with what you think friendship is. The word friend in the Bible is a covenant term. It means that blood has been shed somewhere and that you're in, you are in an indissoluble contract or covenant with God. And God says, shall I hide from Abraham, my servant, what I'm going to do? And I said, stop and think about what he just said. In other words, you say, well, God can do anything he wants. You know what? He can't. One thing he can't do is lie. But he doesn't want to hide what he's going to do. And here again, I could go off on 14 billion rabbit trails. Again, about all these prophets talking about judgment that's coming and stuff like that. Again, what I said earlier, God doesn't hide what he's going to do. He speaks to his servants, the prophets, and his prophets are then to be faithful and to expound and pray and speak that to the world. But the thing is, when he pronounces it, he's pronouncing it, waiting for somebody to understand that because a covenant's been broken, this is now going to have to come. But it's not that I want it to, but they broke it, so now for the covenant, from my side of the covenant, God says, for me to keep covenant, I have to allow this to come because that was part of the terms of the covenant. But I'm looking for somebody that knows the other side of the covenant that knows once I pronounce this is going to happen, they know another key part of the covenant. 
Why, they can come unto me and say, how about your mercies, O God? Which we'll see in a moment if I get, quit rattling on and get to Moses. But think about this. Shall I hide from Abraham, my friend, and serve what I'm going to do? Since, verse 18, since Abraham shall surely become a great and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him and shall bless themselves by him. Verse 19, for I have known, chosen, acknowledged him as my own, so that he may teach and command his children and the sons of his house after him to keep the way of the Lord and to do what is just and righteous so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he's promised him. Verse 20, here it starts. And the Lord said, because the shriek of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is exceedingly grievous, I will go down now. That takes some thinking. What do you mean I'll go down now? Don't you, don't you already know? I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether as vilely and wickedly as is the cry of it which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And you've got to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want to get some other scriptures, so I can't take that apart. I see you in the back there. I see you, Zoe and Hubby. I tell you, I haven't seen you in so long. Sorry, you can edit this out later, but it's good to see your mugs. <laughs> and I listen. Verse 22. Now the two men turned from there and went toward Sodom. These two angels that you heard about that are going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're going to bring the judgment of God on it. All this hideous perverseness and uncleanness that was upon the nation, I mean upon the city. It says, now the two men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but notice Abraham. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. God, I wish I could go there. You've got to understand, when you're actually in, when you've entered into true conversation before God, God won't leave till you leave. But Abraham stood, verse 23, and Abraham, now here, let's just, re, I'll try to, just read it all the way down. I know you're familiar with it, but really catch. Is, is this really, are we really seeing, does this scripture, is this actually so? Is this true? And Abraham came close and said, he's talking to God now, will you destroy the righteous, those upright and in right standing with God together with the wicked? Suppose there are in the city 50 righteous, would you destroy the place and not spare it for the sake of the 50 righteous in it? Now listen, he's talking Almighty God, verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as do the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth execute judgment and do righteously? What's the next verse? And the Lord said, if I find... In the city of Sodom, 50 righteous that are upright and right standing, I will spare the whole place for their sake, right? Right? I mean, you know, we could just stop right there. I want you to see the boldness of Abraham's relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. I said his boldness of relationship 
with the creator of the heavens and the earth. What kind of covenant is this that Almighty God has seen fit to enter into with a man on planet earth? I mean, it's incredible. Verse 27, Abraham answered, uh, Behold now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. I like when you see this played out, when a couple of people are appearing like in a dramatic fashion, going back and forth with this, and somebody actually knows how to play it. Uh, Lord, if, if, if I find in the city of Sodom and 50 righteous, and said, I'll don't. Verse 27 again, sorry. Abraham answered, Behold now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Um, if five of the 50 righteous should be lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? God says, if I find 45, I won't destroy it yet. <clears throat> and Abraham spoke to him yet again and said, um, <clears throat> suppose only 40 shall be found there. And God answers, I will not do it for 40's sake. Then Abraham said to him, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. Suppose only 30 shall be found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, behold, now um, I've taken it upon myself to speak again to the Lord. Suppose only 20 shall be found there. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again only this once. Suppose 10 righteous people shall be found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, honest to God, I've, you know, I was taught this all those many, many years ago. And this is what I mean about, like, again, I always quote Rick Joyner talking about the tyranny of the familiar. Some scripture can be so familiar to you that you, don't, you lose the power of it, sir. What are we actually seeing there? I mean, is this just a story? Is this just some bunch of bunk? Or is Scripture actually saying that one man who is in covenant with God is the determining factor in whether or not an entire city is going to be destroyed? He negotiates God. I don't care what term you want to use. He negotiates. He's negotiating with God Almighty. He knows that everybody needs to be struck in this place because of the vileness and the perversity of what's going on, and which is what we're entering into in this age in front of us, like we talked about. Incredible sexual perversity and everything that the world is now calling, calling commonplace and inclusion. Rubbish, sorry, but that's a bunch of bull. No, it's sin before a mighty and a loving God. But we're to come before God crying mercy. They don't deserve it. If there's somebody there whose heart is actually after God. You know, this is why when you do deal with cults and stuff in the States, back, back in the day we were taught on all the different cults and different things. You know, what you don't understand about people that are, most people that are in cults like New Age Movement is the term we use, but it's still the best term. These people are actually searching for truth and because they're searching they're hungry and because the gospel hasn't been given to them they took something else that was offered to them that's all so you can't command every one of them like call you know treat them like they're devils they're not devils but they do find themselves in, entrapped in a web of demonic deceit and you have to know the difference this is why Paul spoke to the spirit in the woman didn't speak to the woman 
you know, book of Acts. On, you, have to, you have to learn the things of prayer will cause you to know the difference between speaking to a person and speaking to the spirit of a situation. That's encapsulating a problem or a person. But just really think about this Genesis 18 passage. God Almighty is talking to a man, and man is in most respects determining what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now I'm telling you, that is intended to generate faith in us if we would but come to God. Let me tell you, and I have to quote it earlier rather than later, this is the Abrahamic covenant. We are no longer under the Abrahamic covenant. Christ has redeemed us from the curses of the Old Covenant that the blessings of the Old Covenant might still be ours. But Hebrews, Hebrews then goes on to say what? We today are partakers and we are in a better covenant. I said we're in a better covenant. Now either we agree with that or we just flipping don't, excuse me. But either we believe it or we don't. The covenant we're in today is better than the one Abraham says. That's flat out what Scripture says. So if we call ourselves a believer, at some point we have to say, well, that's the truth. I may not have experienced it. Listen, just because you haven't experienced truth, that doesn't, that doesn't dilute truth. Truth is truth, guys. It'll stay true forever. Truth is eternal. Facts change. Truth remains eternal. If, if Abraham can do this under that covenant, and you see, something has to happen in us. We have to understand what it means to stand before God today in a better covenant with a stronger name, in the name of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God himself, to come before God, knowing that he's our intercessor, standing at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession. But the last verse is a chapter I want to get to here. Look at Numbers 14. We're going to start at verse 1. And like I said, I can't go to any of the rest of them because it's already 10 minutes after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's, like I said, I love watching people look at their watch. Paul, I got you, man. <laughs> dudes are checking out their watches. Doesn't even know I'm talking to him. Checking you out, dude. Numbers 14, verse 1. Again, a similar situation. But this is Moses. Now, again, I, I taught my, I've got cassette tape, cassette, we got CDs nowadays, don't we? <laughs> But I mean, when, I, when we had the prayer school, what have you, I taught, I think it's 18 hours or 16 hours on, I called it Moses, the training of an intercessor. I taught over 18 hours on Moses and how God used him as a go-between. He was God's man. He was God's prophet. But again, he stood in between God and man through the Abrahamic covenant. Um, now, just in the back part of Numbers 13 is remember when all the spies have gone out and they have seen the giants, and they said they're giants in their sight, and so they are in our sight, and there's a whole wonderful teaching there. So this is what happens. They come back, and they're all freaked out because of the bad report 10 of the spies bring. So we introduced in verse 1 of chapter 14, and all the congregation, when they heard about all these giants, all the congregation cried out with a loud voice, and they wept all night, and all the Israelites grumbled and deplored their situation, accusing Moses and Aaron, to whom the whole congregation said, would that you'd left us and would that we had died in Egypt or that we died in this wilderness. Why does the Lord bring us to this land to fall by the sword? Let me tell you, God doesn't bring you something to kill you, kill, bring you somewhere to kill you. But why does the Lord bring us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will be a prey. Is it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, in other words, this is the fullness of gossip, 
This is the fullness of producing strife. This is the fullness of what it means to enter into an agreement to speak against the established leadership of any situation, whatever it is. Is it not? It says, and they said one to another, let us choose a captain. <laughs> Let's find somebody else, man. All I know is where this dude's leading us right now, I don't dig it. Let's go elsewhere. And they said to one another, let us choose a captain and return to Egypt. Now here's Moses and Aaron. Now again, we could take time to talk about this. The first thing, there's several places in Scripture where intercessors, the Bible says, says fall on their faces. In real intercession, so don't get mad at me, I'm not trying to say that's the only definition of intercession. I'm talking about singular, the principle of one. I love it, you know, when we, Julie used to lead them, I used to lead the intercessory prayer groups, and that's great, we can all be involved in intercession, but see, there's something, far, if, power comes from privacy. The only way you begin to experience God's power is when you're meditating and thinking on him in private when you're all alone. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. You have to learn how to turn everything off and listen. And then look at some words, maybe walk around in the room and do like the old monks used to do seven centuries ago, monastic prayer. They would walk and they would just speak out and pray the Psalms, or they would pray the Scriptures, or they would pray the Covenant. And you'd stop and you pray in tongues for a while. And you learn after a while that after you've been praying in tongues, you'll start speaking in English and you don't realize it, but it's actually the interpretation of the tongue. And you begin to pray and there's more power attached to it because there is something that's difficult sometimes when we're in a group, but we don't have to worry about it when we're by ourselves. But they fell on their faces. And I'm just trying to say that speaks of an absolute desire to be surrendered to Almighty God. Bowing on your knees is great, but falling on your face seems to show something else to heaven. Now, we're not making a doctrine out of that. I don't want, okay, we're going to pray today and everybody starts, okay, in our church, we all, fall on our, we all fall on our face. You know what I mean? Hallelujah. Now, just try to capture the, this truth of the spirit, the spirit of the word, you know, if we're to be ministers of the spirit of the word, not the letter. Okay, and they said, one, one to another, one another, let us choose a captain and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the Israelites. And Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among the scouts who had searched the land, they rent their clothes. And they said to all the company of the Israelites, hey, the land through which we passed as scouts, in other words, they're bringing an opposite report from the bad report, remember? I know you love my preaching, I understand. And they said to all the company of Israel, the land through which we passed as scouts is an exceedingly good land, like God said it was going to be. Now, if the Lord delights in us, that phrase right there, you need to go and study it. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Neither fear the people of the land. I love this. For they are bread for us. I just love the difference between, you know, Jacob, I mean Jacob, Joshua and Caleb. I love the fact that while everybody else is going, oh my God, the giants, the giants, the giants. These people are giants to us and we're like grasshoppers to them. They're going to eat us up. But here these two other guys say, listen, we were there. The land's great. 
their bread for us, their sandwiches, we'll eat them up. <laughs> Hallelujah. I just see a meal. <laughs> that's all I see. I don't see what they saw, and God help us, that's what he's trying to get us to do today. We must see through the filter of God's grace, God's love, so that we see what God sees. Otherwise, you'll live your life seeing what you see. And let me tell you, what God sees is better than what you see. Anyhow, only do not rebel against the Lord, verse 9, neither fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense and the shadow protection, see, listen to this, they're speaking in past tense. Their defense, all these giants, the, Amalek, the Amalekites, the Nephilim, Annex, their defense and the shadow protection is removed from over them. But the Lord's with us. Fear them not. Fear them not. I mean, see, he's seen from a whole other platform, and he's saying, guys, whoa, 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 whoa. 80% of you are afraid now, and you don't want to go in. You want to go back to Egypt. Understand something. Because God has said to go and take the land, in reality, every one of those giants are already defeated. Because God said to go there. If God said to go there, then why, by the time you get there, evidently things will have changed. But see, hell tries to keep you back here where all you can see is the size of the problem. The thing is, is you, if God says go, what people don't understand is, I wish I had a graph. If God says go, the, the moment you begin to move towards that, you grow larger, the enemy grows smaller. Because you're in obedience. Uh, verse 10, but all the congregation, there's, you know that there's nowhere in Scripture where the majority is in agreement with God? It's always the minority. It's always the minority that are the clarion voices of God. I hope you remember that in the days to come as far as what's going to happen as political policy in this earth, in Europe, in America, whatever. You really need to hear that. <laughs> but all the congregation said to stone. They didn't like the fact that Joshua and Caleb were saying, hey, let's go get them. They're bread for us. They all said, shut those dudes up quick. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm afraid of what's out there, but these guys we can take care of because there's more of us. But all the congregation said to stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. But in the midst of that, see, what happens? But the glory, hallelujah, but the glory of the Lord appeared where? At the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is a one-semester course. I'm not trying to be clever again. It's a one-semester course in a good Bible school. In the midst of all this, while somebody's pressing towards God in faith, and while the enemy is saying all this, Glory begins to come at the tent of meeting. As you, let me just put one little ounce of it, as you remain in the place of prayer. The tent of meeting, behold, are you not, you know, you're the tent of God, you're the body, you're the temple of the Holy Ghost, you're that tabernacle. The glory begins to appear if you stand still. And the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, now watch this, he's going to pronounce something, like I said, like kind of judgment. The Lord said to Moses, now Moses is the prophet at this moment in time. 
But I want you to see again, this role, every single real prophet is in the role of an intercessor. Not just intercessory prayer, but in the role of an intercessor. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people provoke, spurn, despise me, and how long will it be before they believe me, before they trust, rely and cling to me for all the signs which I have performed among them? And here comes the penalties he says is going to happen. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I'll make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, let's stop right there. <laughs> the moment most people read this stuff, they read it, again, they read it like God is speaking like this. I'm going to smite them. <laughs> I'm coming. I just want you to know, Moses, I'm going to smite them with the pestilence, and I'm going to disinherit them. Uh, I'm coming to kill that's who I am. Sorry, anyhow. <laughs> and I'm going to make, but this in the second part, and I'm going to make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, here's Moses, who again, there's almost so many things you can talk about. Like I said, every verse you can split apart, semantics of it. Cracks me up because here's Moses could be saying, hmm, he's going to make of me. All I have to do is stay cool, and he'll make me a nation unto myself. That's not a bad offer. Cool. I am, I, I am kind of rad, you know what I mean? In a sexy kind of way, you know what I mean? But watch the next verse. Watch 13. And again, if we had time, we would look at this in Numbers, in Exodus 33, 9 through 32, Numbers 16, verse 41, and Isaiah 42, 13. But Moses said to the Lord, now God just announced, I'm going to come down, I'm going to smite them with pestilence, I'm going to enter, I'm going to disinherit them because of all their murmuring and their complaining. And Moses says to God, then the Egyptian will hear of it. Think about that. He's saying, God, if you do this, the world's going to see that your reputation isn't really one of being good. You're good. Your mercies are brand new every morning. You're good. But you've got to hear this. God's pronounced what he's about to do because those people deserve it. But here comes a man who knows the covenant, and he begins to rehearse back to God. Watch. Let me read. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. Now again, you've got to think and meditate on this. This is a man, a flesh and blood man. Whether he looked like Charlton Heston, I don't know. But this is a flesh and blood man. Hear me, excuse my humor, but this is a flesh and blood man who's had these experiences with God and he knows God is real, and he says, Lord, don't do this, because the nations who've heard of your deliverance and your power, he said, they will tell it, verse 14, they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are in the midst of this people of Israel, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill all this people as one man, then the nations that have heard your fame will say, because the Lord was not able. 
They're going to say the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give them. Therefore, he has slain them in the wilderness. Now, here's verse 17 and 18 where he brings the covenant to the face of God just like Abraham did to God as well. Verse 17, And now I pray you, let the power of my Lord be great as you have promised. And there we stop again. Do we know what God has promised? Do we actually believe what God has promised? Do we or not? He said, and I pray you, let the power of my Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is long-suffering. And watch this. He's doing what Isaiah 42 says. He's bringing God's word back to him. He's putting God in remembrance. Isaiah 46, excuse me. He's putting God in remembrance. God hasn't forgotten, but the way covenant action works between heaven and man is somebody down here has to know what's been promised, what's been spoken, what's been written. It's the same thing that Jesus did in the wilderness. It is written, it is written, it is written. Moses knew what was written. And he said, and you've got to come to God through what is written. That's how you save unsavory people. But he said again, and now at verse 18, the Lord, let's start verse 17 again. And now I pray you, let the power of my Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and slow to anger and abundant in mercy and loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the third and the fourth generation. Now watch verse 19. Moses is praying. He says what? Pardon, I pray you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy and loving kindness. That is one word in the Hebrew, and it is the word for the covenant. It is this word barith. It speaks of always loving kindness and mercy. I pardon, I pray you, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy and loving kindness, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. And look at verse 20. Verse 20 is where I'll have to stop. I wish to God I could go to some other But think about this next simple little scripture. The weight of this. The weight of it. Is it up there? Look, what's it say? The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Do you hear what that's saying, really? Seriously. are Are we just playing games, or is this real? God... Now, this is what's funny when you catch it. God says, okay, because you came to me with the promises, I'm going to pardon you. Listen, though, it says I'm going to pardon you what? According to your word. Whose word? Moses. But listen, but Moses' word was God's word. Did you catch that? I have pardoned according to your word. This is God Almighty. I'm going to smite them with petulance. See, that's not how he comes when he pronounces judgment. You've got to, God is love. He pronounces judgment rather like this. I'm going to, I'm going to have to smite them with petulance. I'm going to have to disinherit them. And then he waits. Is there one man 
is the, is the one woman down there who just heard what's about to happen because it's just for this to happen because of how they broke in the covenant. But is there anyone else down there that knows the other side of the covenant? Who knows that it says this, that, and the other, that I'm a God that's long-suffering, full of mercies, willing to pardon, willing to forgive? He's waiting. But if there's no man to stand in the middle, instead of looking around and uh, being in agreement with everybody else, boy, God's going to judge this. Boy, God's going to judge that. Boy, God's going to judge this. Boy, God's going to judge that. But if there's somebody in a private place, see, hidden, it's always the hidden people. Because you don't have to, you're not tempted to try to impress anybody with your great prayer life when there ain't nobody around to be impressed. <laughs> it's when you spend time in that hiding place, that secret place, and you get before God and you get that word and you get that covenant and say, yeah, I know, they deserve hell itself. But you're a God of mercy. You're a God that's long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should suffer. In the name of Jesus, in the name of the greatest covenant maker that there ever was, we come to you. We ask you to forgive. We ask you to cleanse. We ask you to redeem. We ask you to bring fresh strength. We ask you to bring light where there's darkness. We ask you to bring salvation and deliverance where it's necessary. We're asking you in the name of Jesus Christ, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you just stay there, and you stay there, and Ephesians 6 becomes real. Having done all to stand, I just keep standing. I just keep standing, praying the word, praying the word, praying the word, praying the word, praying the promises, praying the promises, praying the promises, because God answers his own stuff. It's just that we have to get out of agreement with the world, and we have to get back into agreement with God. Amen. And that's a little taste, uh, a little taste of, of intercession. Father, we give you praise right now. We thank you that you're the God that delivers people from impossible situations. And I feel your strength even right now because I know that you bless your truth, and I say that as humbly as I can. But I give you thanks right now, Father. I give you thanks for breakthrough right now for every life in this room, everybody who will lift their hands before you and surrender and say, here am I, O God. Take this mess away from me. Forgive me, God. Cleanse me, O God. Cleanse me, O God. I pray, Father, for an absolute breaking of any fetter, any chain, over any stronghold, over anyone's life in this room right now through the precious, all-powerful name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I speak liberty. I speak freedom. I speak deliverance. I speak soundness of mind. I speak freedom in the name of Jesus Christ because of your great grace because of your great grace, because of your great grace. Can we just stand to our feet and give him praise? We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 